welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatrag. Those are my pen names. And we've been reading Philippe's story, Finding Home, which is the latest of my whips to be finished. Yes, I still have several. Still have too many. The Path Not Taken is my Bucky Barnes alternate universe story that I need to uh, work on. Um, Momentous is a long, long story of Final Fantasy XV that covered the Ten Years of Darkness, or just basically the three guys after Noctis goes into the crystal in the Ten Years of Darkness, and Noctis has just returned, and the battle has been won, and Ardent has been fought. Dawn has returned as of chapter 60, and now I've written chapter 61, and at least half of 62, but I haven't typed them up yet. And then there's Perchance to Dream, which is a Legends of Tomorrow story, which I've put on the back burner for the time being. And then I do have an unfinished Bucky Barnes series, or possibly multiple series. The time between is done. I've covered the years between the two movies. Between Captain America Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War. That's the time between. So those two stories are it. The making of the Winter Soldier probably is done. Because by the time we get to his greatest achievement, Bucky is programmed... He has his memory wiped. He's got the serum. He's got everything to make him the Winter Soldier. So I don't think there's another one in that direction. Could there be one before from his time at Krausberg when he was taken from the factory and put in the lab and then rescued by Captain America? So that's a potential. But I have kind of talked about it a little in A Tale of Two Cities and, uh, excuse me, A Tale of Two Cats and other stories. Tale of Two Cities is, a, is a, one of my favorite novels. Very good beginning. Very difficult middle. Fabulous, fabulous ending. Uh, but the one that definitely will continue is Pieces to a Puzzle. So definitely have more present time stories or post Falcon and the Winter Soldier stories. I just haven't figured out where they start and end and which one's this one and they, you know, how do I... They just have to kind of come together into the story. A Tale of Two Cats and other stories kind of did that with two different things. I was able to bring back, you know, Bucky mentions in Healing Hurts that he doesn't have his notebooks anymore. And in the tale of two cats, um, I've just lost his name. <laughs> the Falcon, Sam, <laughs> Sam, Sam brought them back and gives them to him. And that prompts a discussion that ends up talking about the cat. And that gives him the idea of getting Bucky a cat. And then the therapist calls and they go in he and Bucky she and Bucky go into the cat but also why he you know the other cat since it came up but also some really neat um things that each of them said one of them you know Bucky said that he didn't want 
you know, to forget the people he killed because he was the last one who could remember them and they deserve to be remembered. And then she said, after he said something along the lines of, if I had fought, died when I fell off the mountain, those people would still be alive. And she says, would they? Because if Hydra wanted them dead, even if they didn't have you, they would have died. They would have been killed. They would have used someone else. So those, both of those just came as I was writing it. And it was, that's the magic to me. I didn't plan that that would be said. But both of those came as my hand was moving across the, the paper and I was in that discussion and I was doing what I tell people about dialogue. I was listening to the characters and writing what they'd say and it just happens. I love that. Okay, speaking of therapy, we got some more of it because Finding Home, uh, we met the therapist yesterday. I mean, we, the reader, met him before that, but Malcolm met his therapist yesterday. So, and then at the end of the, the chapter, Dr. McCormick suggested to Coy Travon that he meet with Malcolm every day. So we are definitely going to have a discussion between him and Malcolm in this chapter. So let's get into it. Chapter six of Finding Home. Star Trek Enterprise, Finding Home, by Philippe de Lamatraque, sequel to Alien Us, Chapter 6. It was late. The Two Towers was on. The battle was about to begin at Helm's Deep. It was an exciting part, but Malcolm was exhausted. He wanted to sleep, but he was afraid to. Helm's Deep was safer than dreaming himself paralyzed and being cut open, or even just those three fingers reaching for him. Since their rescue, Hoshi and he had regularly dreamed together, guiding each other subconsciously if both were asleep, or consciously, if only one was, to more pleasant dreams, or at least being together for the more unpleasant dreams. Now here, he was too far from her. He worried that she was having nightmares too, but there was no sedative to put a stop to them and rob her of the rest she needed. That was the dilemma he was facing. If he'd slept, he'd dream, and those dreams would be terrible, and that would get, get his new heart overexcited. Then he'd be unconscious for about an hour and start all over again. At this point, he'd love one of the annoying recurring dreams when he was in the past on Enterprise, and someone would always tell him they weren't there yet. But he'd caught up with the present. Would the dreams just be Enterprise now? Before, he'd actually been on Enterprise during those past events. So would he just be here on Earth in the hospital? In his musings, he'd missed the battle. He switched off the screen. It was no good. He'd have to sleep. Not sleeping would probably stress that heart, too. Right now, he felt sort of hollowed out. He lowered the head of the bed, but not all the way. It reminded him too much of the beds back there. No, he wouldn't think of back there. Enterprise. He'd think of Enterprise. Deck by deck, if need be. He closed his eyes and started with the bridge, the tactical console. Every display, every light, every button, every seam in his chair. He went out from there. By the time he reached the situation room, he'd slipped into sleep. Fortunately for him, dreams didn't occur until later in the sleep cycle, so he managed at least some rest before the images began to reach his mind. And he was on Enterprise. 
right there on the bridge. No one else was, though, which he found odd. He left the bridge and went to Hoshi's quarters, but she didn't answer her door. He tried the galley, sick bay, the gym, but Hoshi wasn't there. Flox wasn't there. The captain, Travis, the Makos. No one was on the ship but him. He went back to the bridge to look at the sensor logs to try and find the crew. But there was nothing on them but static. It was no use. So he went to his quarters, where at least he had plenty to read. But when he picked up a book and opened it, the pages were blank. He laid back on the bed and started to memorize the ceiling. Alone on Enterprise was terribly uneventful. It wasn't the only dream he had that night, but it was the best one. The sedative tipped him into unconsciousness a few times before Trip and breakfast arrived in the morning. Dr. McCormick stepped into Lieutenant Reed's room. He looked tired and haggard, which wasn't surprising given his night. Good morning, Lieutenant, she offered as a greeting. How do you feel? Tired, he replied, and hungry. Any pain? Just a bit of an ache in my chest, he answered. Nothing new to me. I understand they kept you in an induced coma for a week after. I only know I was eventually actually unconscious, but I suppose it could have been a week. His pulse increased, and he rolled his eye. I've had nightmares for months, he said. I can deal with them, but I need sleep. I get it. McCormick came closer to the bed. It's that heart we can't risk. May I take a look? Reed pulled back the blanket to reveal his bandaged chest. McCormick used her scanner to check the heart and the microsutures attaching it to his body. Everything was holding well. There was no bleeding, no signs of bruising. His blood pressure was slightly elevated, but that could be due to the post-traumatic stress and the lack of sleep. As she put away the scanner, she covered him again with her, her other hand. She mused that it was, seemed his sister's heart was determined to make this work, as much as his sister was, like she was looking out for him. Can you flex all your fingers? She asked him. He demonstrated by opening and closing his hands. They feel a little stiff. You may need some occupational therapy, McCormick told him. Even though it was a relatively short time, the disuse and trauma to the nerves caused some atrophy in the muscles. The nerves are working, though. That had to happen first. Your ankles? They're wrapped so tight I can't move them much anyway, he said. She uncovered his feet. Sorry, but this may feel a little uncomfortable. She used a neural stimulator just below the intermediate dorsal cutaneous nerve and the peroneal artery of his right foot. He grunted as his foot jerked. Now the other. She got the same reaction with the right. Then she covered his feet again. You wouldn't have even felt that before. It's still early yet, Lieutenant, but you're doing well. I'm going to adjust the sensitivity of the sedative trigger. Maybe that will get you a bit more sleep. How's oatmeal sound for breakfast? He shrugged. Not too exciting, huh? She smiled. What if I have them put chunks of pineapple in it? He smiled. I think I can live with that. Your Dr. Flox did wonders on that sunburn of yours, she commented as she looked over the skin of his face, his arms. He really brought you back from the brink. Apparently, I came very close to dying, he replied, before the heart attack. Rather glad I didn't die. McCormick smiled again. Me too. I'll tell them to send your breakfast up. Tripp arrived as Malcolm's breakfast did. He didn't look any better rested, but his breakfast was definitely a step up from gelatin, oatmeal from the looks of it. Things are looking up in the food department, huh? 
If oatmeal with dehydrated pineapple is looking up, Malcolm responded. Still, at least they added the pineapple. Tripp sat back on the love seat and propped one leg over the other knee. Before you know it, you'll be at eggs and bacon. Malcolm took a long swig of milk. Doc turned down the sedative this morning. I might actually get some sleep tonight. Something else to look forward to, Tripp commented. Except that all my dreams are horrible, Malcolm added. Still, at least it's sleep. Anyone who thinks unconsciousness is restful is highly mistaken. Tripp nodded. More like skipping time, huh? Malcolm nodded, and he put his empty glass back on the tray. He grimaced and sat back again. Used to it, Malcolm answered. Lost count how many times my chest has been cracked open. Tripp sincerely hoped he'd soon be unused to it. It still horrified him to think what that was like for Malcolm and Hoshi to wake up while being cut open and unable to move at all. He didn't want to leave the conversation there. You give any more thought to talking to your therapist? He'd said he'd come by again today if I didn't object, Malcolm yawned. I didn't object. It'll be good for you, I promise. Tripp picked up a pad. Got a lot of tech specs to go over before I head to R&D today. Mind if I read them aloud? Malcolm lowered the head of the bed a bit. I'd love to hear it. Tripp chuckled. He knew Malcolm would take the opportunity to sleep. He'd doze off the day before. Tripp had noticed the pulse monitor kept up a steady beat. So he made sure to grab a very lengthy, very technical manual. If his voice kept Malcolm's dreams a little more normal, he'd read until his voice broke. Travon approached room 36A. The door was open, and Travon could see the patient asleep in his bed. His friend, likewise, appeared to be sleeping. His head was tipped back on the back of the sofa. Travon knocked a bit harder on the door than he normally would. The reaction was just what he wanted. The friend bolted upright. Malcolm stirred. Oh, God, the friend checked the time. I'm late. And that woke Malcolm up for real. Travon entered the room. You must be Commander Tucker. He offered a hand to the friend. Uh, yeah, Tucker said. He took the hand. And you are? Dr. Coy Travon, Travon offered, giving the hand a quick shake. I don't mean to keep you. I was hoping Lieutenant Reed and I might have a conversation. Oh, Tucker reacted. Oh, yeah. He turned to Malcolm, who looked with interest at the tray beside the bed, which now held a sandwich, a bowl of yellow fruit, and a glass of water. He grimaced slightly as he sat up. I'll see you later, Malcolm. Tucker waved on his way out. Please, Travon insisted, closing the door. Enjoy your lunch. He sat down opposite Reed on the sofa. How was your rest, Malk? It seems Commander Tucker has a calming effect on you. Reed took a moment to swallow. If you mean his voice while reading a long technical manual keeps the nightmares at bay, it rings true thus far. He must have noticed me dozing off yesterday. He's a good friend, Travon remarked. You needed the rest. Dr. McCormick tells me the threshold for your sedative has been raised. She said you'd rather have the nightmares. I've lived with them for nearly a year, was Reed's answer. I still had to sleep there, too. Travon nodded. I agree, though, of course, it's better if you can sleep without being traumatized over again while doing so. Still, I think it's a good idea to wean you off that sedative, as the condition of your new heart allows. Does that mean we are supposed to discuss those horrors today? We needn't jump that far into things, Travon replied. Let's start somewhere a bit safer, so to speak. The crash. Malcolm's left hand paused on its way to bring the glass to his mouth. Too taxing, Travon asked. No, Malcolm responded. Just haven't thought that far back in a long while. 
except where Moody was involved. Moody? Trevon recognized the word as an emotion. He was a Mako. He finally took a drink. Trevon waited a moment. He saved our lives. We hit something on the way to the planet. Wait, Trevon stopped him. Why were you going there? The hand paused again, this time on its way back to the tray. A message. We picked up a strange distress call from the surface. The pulse monitor began to increase. This message upsets you, Trevon observed. Why? Because it was me, Reed whispered. He still hadn't set the glass back down. Did you know that at the time? No. His voice was stronger. We didn't know. It was distorted in Denobulin and Morse code. Trevon walked over to him and took the glass to set it down. What are you feeling right now? Malcolm wasn't looking at him. His hand hadn't moved. He didn't reply either. Are you feeling guilt? I... Malcolm began. He seemed out of breath. They told me it wasn't my fault. Whatever you feel is all right. You're allowed to feel it. If it is guilt, it doesn't mean that it was your fault, but that you feel it was. Feelings don't always tell the truth. It was me. My voice. Malcolm whispered. The beeping increased. You didn't know that at the time. Did they tell you after you were rescued? Trevon went back to the love seat. Malcolm nodded barely. It feels like my fault. But to Paul said it was a paradox. Trevon started to put that together. Let me guess. You were sent to investigate the source of this message that, in reality, you sent much later into the story. Reed nodded again. So why do I still feel guilty? Trevon shrugged. Perhaps it's only residual. Keep telling yourself the truth that no one blames you, and you'll eventually believe it as you recover physically and emotionally. Could it be that when Enterprise discovered it was your voice, that they learned what had really happened to the shuttle pod and were able then to start planning your rescue? If that's the case, your message very likely saved your lives. I hadn't thought of it like that, Reed replied. So it's just that simple. I just tell myself it's not my fault. Simple? No. Trevon stated, there's a split between the cognitive mind and the more primitive mind in traumatic situations. I had a patient once have that epiphany after a river rafting accident. Her raft was overthrown and she had a very traumatic time being dashed on the rocks. She escaped without injury, but one can't simply stop halfway down a river. She had to keep going. She was put in another raft. She said that she grabbed the handholds on that raft with white knuckles every time it had even the slightest jiggle. At times, she could see that the water was calm and only knee-deep, but her hands would not let go. She said her mind was telling her it was safe, but her body was saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. That more primitive part of the brain hijacked her body, and the prefrontal cortex couldn't compete. At least not right away. For her, it took facing her fears the next year. She didn't want to lose a hobby she enjoyed over it. She went river rafting again. She said the fear came back at first. She gripped the handles at every bump. But as the day went on with no disasters, she began to feel comfortable in the raft again. By the end of the trip, she was fine. I don't think I want to try being vivisected again, Reed quipped. Trevon held up a hand. That was a lesser trauma, but the concept is the same. Your cognitive mind can tell you that you're safe, that you're healing, that there is nothing here to fear. But your body, your primitive mind, is not going to just believe it. Not yet. He leaned forward. 
So you, Insensato, and Moody were sent to investigate. What happened to make you crash? There was a layer of magnetic interference, Reed told him, remembering. We had just cleared that when we got another jolt, lost power. We were already caught in the planet's gravity well. All we could do was try to keep the nose up. A chroniton pulse. Obviously, you and Insensato survived. Moody did not. Were you injured? Malcolm shrugged. Concussion, broken arm, Hoshi had broken ribs. We got a few supplies, then I blew up the shuttle pod. Trevon nodded toward the pulse monitor. You don't appear traumatized by the crash. Malcolm adjusted a bit to see Trevon better. Trevon noticed and moved to the other end of the love seat so it was a little easier. Malcolm relaxed again. Why would I be? We weren't shot down. The shuttle pod wasn't trying to kill us. We train for emergency situations like that. Of course, Trevon replied. There were, are no bad actors in that scenario. No one caused the crash. What did you do then? Were you discovered? Not right away, Malcolm answered. We spotted some trees coming in. We tried walking toward them. Got close. What stopped you? Did they catch you? Oh, she's ribs. Punctured her lungs, Malcolm sighed. I couldn't go on without her. I buried our communicator. Then we sat down and waited for them to reach us. Were you frightened at all? Were they aggressive? Malcolm focused on that memory. That was when he first saw Sauron. Not particularly. They showed in force, but they had one of the wingeds with them. He was very curious. They packed us up and took us to their facility. We just had to hope they'd treat us well. Trevon looked confused. Did they? The notes I was given didn't seem to cover this earlier time. I suppose whoever sent them didn't find this time to be traumatic, were they? Not particularly. That time was so different. Boring, mostly. They'd treated our wounds, separated us, poked at us a little, blood samples and the like, seemed fascinated by our differences. Hoshi was with you. Separate rooms. He smiled, remembering how they got in touch. We tapped on the walls. Songs first, then Morse code. And there was that descant. So that had started before the base notes. The bond began before the mistreatment and was only enhanced by the eventual telepathy. What is Morse code? Trevon had never heard of it. Taps or, or pulses, long and short. Different combinations stand for letters in our alphabet, used for centuries. During that time apart, did you anticipate that things would get worse? Malcolm shook his head. They gave us no reason to. We still hoped Enterprise would come for us. We tried to stay positive. The pulse monitor held steady, but Trevon knew it would change as soon as they left that first month behind. So he decided to focus on the descant. Can you tell me about Hoshi? Why? And there was the wall Trevon had expected from Reed's psychological profile. But this wasn't due to trauma, Trevon was sure. This was protectiveness. Because I have a suspicion that your relationship with her was elemental in saving your sanity. I thought that began after you became telepathic. But now I'm sensing this may have started during this period of separation. Malcolm regarded him with some suspicion. She's our communications officer. She's a linguist, a genius. She can hear things the rest of us can't even imagine. She's intelligent, competent, and kind. In her free time, she likes to cook. Trevon sighed but surrendered. I do think she's important to your story, but we needn't get there today. He said, Perhaps now that we've refreshed your memory of this less taxing time, you can have a more restful night. 
He headed for the door. Oh, but do tell me, please, what gave you the idea to use this literary reference, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee and the like? Malcolm smiled lightly. The desert reminded us of Mordor, a particularly inhospitable location in The Lord of the Rings. We joked about who was Frodo and who was Sam. Then, because we didn't think it wise to be truthful to the natives, we let it stick. Yes, Trevon said, smiling broadly. The Lord of the Rings. I've begun to read it out of curiosity. It's quite a long story. They made films, Reed informed him. Less time than it takes to read, but not 100% accurate to the books. I'll have to look them up. See you tomorrow, Malcolm. Trevon opened the door and left the room. Tomorrow would be more difficult. He had a feeling his note started just after that time of boredom and tapping on the walls. Tripp's visit was a bit later than the last few days. Malcolm had been able to watch all four hours of the two towers. He shut off the screen when Tripp showed up. Oh, hey, you've already eaten, Tripp said as he pointed to the tray of empty dishes. They kept me a bit longer today. He sighed and sat down in the chair. Looks like an, I can only stay a week more, maybe ten days. So soon? The bloody pulse monitor kept giving away his feelings. Can't put a brave face on anything when his heart kept betraying him. I'm sorry, Malcolm. Tripp leaned forward so his elbows rested on his knees. You did such a good job stabilizing the particle density that they don't have a whole lot of need for me. Don't think I'm ready to be alone yet, Malcolm admitted. I know. You give any thought to where you might go when they let you out of here? Malcolm kept his breath even. It helped some. Won't they contact my family? Tripp scooted closer. Is that what you want? Definitely not, he thought. But this was Tripp. Did he really have to hide from Trip? Wouldn't be my first choice. Maybe with Madeline? You said you were never really close with your family. Can you tell me why? He told Hoshi, but he just wasn't ready to tell anyone else yet. My father was an admiral. Very strict. Trip sighed and leaned back. Maybe strict isn't what you need right now. I can look into other options if you like. I'll see if I can reach Madeline. He scooted closer again. So what have you been doing? You talked to that therapist again? Malcolm nodded. Wasn't so bad. He didn't ask about the hard stuff. Not yet. Like what? Tripp asked, shaking his head. What about the last year wasn't hard? The crash, Malcolm told him. The walk through the desert. The month or so after that. Oh, really? Tripp leaned back again and crossed his legs. Look, I only saw the political stuff. Flox got the medical stuff, and he only gave us the highlights. He rolled his eyes. Or the lowlights, considering. Malcolm sighed. He didn't want to rehash the whole thing. It was kind of boring, but it was easy. I destroyed the shuttle pod and everything in it to keep it from contaminating their culture. Hoshi and I tried to walk to a line of trees I'd seen coming in. As we walked, she remarked that it felt like Mordor. Mordor, Trip grinned. So that was the start of all the Lord of the Rings references. Malcolm smiled, too. Worked well for code names and other things. Can you believe she thought I might not have read the books? Well, it's not exactly Sun Tzu's art of war, Tripp commented. It was required reading in school, Malcolm informed him. Besides, I never said I didn't enjoy fiction now and then. Tripp's eyebrows went up. You never said a bunch of stuff. He started counting on his fingers, like where you grew up, where you went to school, what you did in your free time, if you had any pets, your favorite movie. Why? Malcolm shot back. Am I the subject of a trivia game? Do you want to know about that first month or not? Tripp held up his hands in surrender. Having successfully steered Tripp into safer waters, he continued. At night, it got nippy, so we had to keep moving. There was this large predator that approached whenever we stopped. Fortunately, 
It was rather shy, and Hoshi has a good arm. You threw rocks at it? Trip was grinning again. My arm was broken, Malcolm replied, nodding. Her ribs were. Eventually that became a problem. She fell, the ribs punctured her lung. We had to stop. Trip stopped grinning and looked concerned. None of those predators around, I hope. Malcolm shook his head. They only came around at night. This was broad daylight. We'd seen them coming from a distance, a rather large contingent of raptors, the bigger ones, and one scientist. That had to be scary. Malcolm shrugged. We hoped for the best, and it seemed okay at first. The scientist was fascinated, and he recognized we were injured. They put us in a box and took us back to their fa facility. Kinesitai Research Silo, in case you were wondering. That had been his home for a year. I never got to see much of it, Malcolm said, so they sedated us and repaired our wounds. They got it right? Tripp asked. What the hell changed? Damned if I know, Malcolm admitted, but yes, that time they got it right. I woke up in a room by myself. They came in now and then to look me over. Eventually, Hoshi and I worked out we were in adjoining rooms. We tapped on the wall to communicate. Trip was grinning a lot today. Romance start that early? Not quite. Malcolm shook his head. We kept to short messages. Didn't want to give them any toehold in communicating with us. That had to have been hard on Hoshi. Malcolm nodded. She got quite angry. But they only ever tried to speak to me. Trip laughed. I'm sure they never got anywhere with that. Why didn't they try talking to her? Was it true the females were different there? Very, Malcolm replied. She told me about them later on. She befriended a juvenile, called her Pippin, and tried to test her intelligence. She was like a small child. So they just figured, Tripp said, shaking his head, that all females everywhere must be the same. Malcolm nodded. Apparently. The Buftanesians never even tried. Bet Hoshi was happy to hear, he touched his forehead, from you. We both were. Malcolm yawned. Ah, oh. oh, that reminds me. Tripp began to fish into one of his pockets. I brought you something. He pulled out a small device about the size of a scanner. White noise generator. Instead of my voice droning on, you choose a sound that works for you. Might have to play around with it a bit to find a sound you like. Malcolm turned on the device and chose the sound of a locomotive to try it out. It did drown out the damn pulse monitors beeping and other sounds, like the people moving outside his door. He switched it off. Just might work. Well, on that thought, Tripp said, rising... Mom's making pan-fried catfish for dinner. I cannot pass that up, but I'll be back first thing in the morning, I promise. Go, Malcolm told him. I'll be fine. Stiff up her lip and all. Still, he hoped he'd get more sleep tonight thanks to the sedative being changed, and maybe the white noise device would work. Let me know how that works tomorrow, Tripp said as he left. Sleep well. And Malcolm was alone again. He turned on the white noise and tried to sleep. It was sometime in the night that Malcolm tripped the sedative. Dr. Varnas entered with two nurses. She ran a scanner over the patient's head to determine his level of consciousness. When she ascertained the patient was fully sedated, she gave the signal to the nurses. They pulled back the blanket and sheet. Varnas aided one in disconnecting some of the monitoring cables while the other removed the catheter. She left the pulse monitor and the IV. Dr. McCormick wasn't ready to have done with those. All accomplished, the nurses tucked the sheet and the blanket back around the patient. Varnish took one more scan of the patient's heart. She noted on his chart that his heart was working well under the stress. She recommended a further reduction in the sensitivity of the sensor that tripped the sedative. Then she and the nurses left the room. 
Tripp found Malcolm either asleep or unconscious. He really hoped it was the former. He could hear the white noise device was still on, just in case he made himself comfortable on the love seat. He set the container beside him. Dr. McCormick had told him a small piece of pecan pie wouldn't be a problem, so he pulled up the schematics of the proposed anti-gravity skids. He wasn't sure EM force fields would allow the skids to move smoothly over the edges of hatches. Maglifts would be better, but that would only work on magnetized decking, and that much magnetic charge would throw off several systems on a starship. Suddenly, Malcolm jerked and woke up. Bad dreams? Tripp asked. Malcolm raised the head of the bed so he was sitting up. Trip, he sounded out of breath. Guess locomotive wasn't the right white noise, Trip commented. He stood up and grabbed the container. He put it on the tray and slid it over. Mom sent you some pecan pie and the doc said you could eat it. Malcolm's one exposed eyebrow lifted. Did she now? He pulled the tray closer and opened the container. Smells good. Trip produced a fork from his breast pocket. No one makes pecan pie like my mom. Malcolm took the fork and cut a bite loose. Tripp waited while he ate it. Well, he asked. It is good, Malcolm said, cutting off another piece. The truth? Malcolm stopped before taking the next bite. Why would you think I'm lying? You ate Chilean sea bass and said that was good, but you hate fish. Tripp sat back in the chair. I like it, Tripp. Malcolm finally took the next bite. It's not pineapple, but it's good. You do realize I spent a year eating alien produce and mystery meat. Tripp chuckled. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Malcolm shifted his weight and got a confused look. What's wrong? Tripp started to get up, but Malcolm waved him off. It seems some things were removed last night. Just noticed I feel a lot more comfortable. Tripp sat back. Well, that's okay then. Must mean you're doing well. Ah, Commander Tucker. Tripp turned to see Dr. McCormick in the doorway. You're earlier than I thought. You said he could have the pie, Tripp said in his defense. I assumed you were calling from home. She moved further into the room. The pie is fine, though we shouldn't make a habit of dessert for breakfast. She turned to Malcolm. It's a big day, Lieutenant. You're going to need to get out of that bed and put those angles to work. Tripp backed up to give her access to Malcolm. She detached the pulse monitor and the IV line. The restroom is right through that door. She pointed just past one end of the love seat. That's your goal today. Get there, do what you need to do, and get back. Malcolm eyed the love seat. Can I sit over there? I suppose, but only when someone is in here with you. If anything should go wrong. Tripp grinned. Things were definitely looking up. I'll get a walker in here, the doctor went on. It's not glamorous, but those legs haven't been walking in quite a while. They're bound to be a bit shaky. I'm sure Mr. Tucker can offer support while he's here. Yes, ma'am, Tripp replied. Finish your pie, Lieutenant, McCormick said as she walked away. I'll send some milk to wash it down. Malcolm wasted no time in finishing the pie. He pushed the tray away and pulled back the covers to swing his legs over the side. They must have dressed me while I was unconscious. Still happened? Tripp asked. Malcolm shrugged. I feel more rested than other mornings, but in this case, I'm rather glad I was unconscious when certain things were removed. Tripp could guess. He hadn't ha needed the restroom before. I would be too. He stood and held out an arm to help steady Malcolm as he slipped off the bed. His ankles were still bandaged tightly. Malcolm took his arm until he felt steady. You ready for this? Tripp asked him. Definitely. Whether or not my ankles are is still to be determined. I'll be right beside you, Tripp offered, just in case. The distance probably wasn't four meters, but it seemed like a gulf. Malcolm remembered his thigh bones snapping, the cables pulling his ankles. 
You got this, Malcolm, Tripp told him, one step at a time. Malcolm looked at the love seat. He hadn't been out of a bed, except to be executed or to have a date with Hoshi for nearly a year. It was dignity. To get to that restroom, to sit on that love seat, dignity he'd been denied. He tested his left leg. The bone must have healed well, or the pain meds were really good, because it only ached a little. He took a step, then another. His ankles protested, but not loudly. It was more like his feet were waking up, remembering they had a job to do. It took 13 steps to reach the restroom. Tripp closed the door behind him. The restroom itself looked so familiar. It was different from the one in sick bay. This one was definitely earthier, a little less modern. It was pretty similar to the academy. Malcolm found it comforting. He relieved himself and washed his hands as well as he could with the splints. There was also sanitizing gel, so he used that just to be sure his hands and the splints were clean. Then he pressed the door release. Tripp was waiting for him. You good? Malcolm nodded. At least here in the hospital, there were no hatches. The floors were flat. He exited the restroom, then turned to sit on the love seat. He found it strange to be so emotional about sitting on a cushioned, forward-facing seat. Tripp sat opposite him in the chair. You sure you're okay? Tripp looked over at him. Except for that wheelchair. I haven't sat like this, on anything like this, since the shuttle pod. An orderly entered just then with a glass of milk. Tripp swung the tray over to the love seat. The orderly left the milk, and Malcolm picked up the glass. Do you think we could pretend? He looked to Tripp. Just for a little while. They were just sitting down for a chat after a hard mission, just relaxing. Tripp smiled. Yeah, we can do that. Travon entered 36A, surprised to find Reed's bed empty, but then he found him propped on some pillows against the arm of the sofa. The blanket from the bed was spread across his lower body. There were voices and music on the screen on the wall to the right of the door. He turned and saw very large elephants with scaffolding atop them, full of painted warriors. I thought elephants were smaller than that. Elephants are, Malcolm replied. His voice sounded a bit strained. Those are oliphants. And they're not on Earth. They're in Middle-earth. Ah! Trevon realized what this was. The Lord of the Rings films. May I pause it? The lieutenant nodded. Trevon went to the bed and pulled the controller from the pocket on the side. He looked at the screen again. There was an impressive and rather nasty-looking army arrayed in front of a tiered, conical, and very white city. Reed attempted to change position to sit properly on the sofa. A quick intake of breath told Trevon he was in pain. How long have you been away from the bed? he asked. Since breakfast? Trevon helped him adjust his legs, then went to the panel on the door to call for pain medicine. It was apparent Dr. McCormick had released him from the IV drip and the pulse monitor. It was likely meant to be a temporary reprieve. Are you certain you don't want to return to the bed? I'm certain. There was a hard set to his face. Trevon held up a hand. He wouldn't force the issue. He sat down in the chair to face him and waited for the nurse. A young man entered with a hypospray and approached. For pain, he told Malcolm, then injected the medicine. Kashanitha, Malcolm said. His eye was unfocused. I'm sorry, the nurse asked. Trevon stood and touched the nurse's arm. I'll take it from here. Please close the door on your way out. The nurse left. The door closed. Trevon turned to his patient. Malcolm, what does Kashanitha mean? I remember that one, Malcolm said. Hoshi told me. Trevon tried again. What does it mean? For pain, he replied. 
they gave us medicine for pain. Kervan knew he'd have to tread lightly here. Malcolm was on the edge of a flashback. If Malcolm pushed too hard, he'd get lost in it. While it might be enlightening and illustrative to his traumatic reactions, it wouldn't necessarily help Malcolm heal. Was that from your wounds after the crash? He shook his head and blinked. No, it was later. Trevon only hoped he'd continue talking. Hoshi was with you then, he nodded. Then it was after the first procedure. Trevon leaned forward slightly. Can you tell me about it? What's there to tell, he said, with that hard set to his face again. I was paralyzed but awake as they cut me open. Trevon blew out a breath. That's not quite how this works. Malcolm looked away. I don't know how it works. You need to tell me how you felt and how you feel now. You need to let go of all that control and give yourself permission to not be okay right now. Malcolm didn't speak, but he seemed to consider it. Trevon wondered what had instilled that need for control. It often stemmed from instability or trauma in childhood or adolescence. Was it tied to that secret hurt? Permission to not be okay. That was a foreign concept. Reed men didn't let circumstances get the better of them. His father had been very insistent about that in the years after his drowning. And then there was Harris. So who was Trevon to say he could give himself that permission? Were you not allowed to voice your feelings as a child? Is that another educated guess? Trevon nodded. But I sense you have more reticence to telling me about that issue. So the events on Sharu should be easier. Malcolm, it is no secret that you have nightmares, serious ones that increase your pulse to a dangerous rate. You have flashbacks. You aren't always going to be able to control those. You had a brief one when the nurse gave you your pain meds, he smiled lightly. You have post-traumatic stress. You have to let your control go at times. It'll be taken from you whether you like it or not. Hoshi's words came back to him. Get better, Malcolm. Talk to someone. You can't heal this alone. Not this time. He sighed and frowned. Trevon sat back. Let's start over. When were you aware that circumstances had changed from being housed in adjoining rooms? Malcolm took a bracing breath. They stopped feeding us. Did that frighten you? Malcolm frowned again. Well, somewhat. They hadn't mistreated us to that point, but they acted strange. What did you think they might be up to? I thought it could be an experiment to see how long it took to starve us or to get us ready to transport elsewhere or to kill us. He took a moment to exhale. Or surgery. So that possibility did occur to you. Did you resist when they came for you? Malcolm scoffed. <laughs> Fat lot of good that did. I only showed you a small one. Beiju was about a foot taller than me. The larger ones were more than a meter taller, and there was one of each. They acted like it was just another exam, then they grabbed me. Was it immediate, or were you legitimately unconscious for a time? Malcolm's hands clenched and unclenched, and he couldn't make them stop. Trevon reached forward and covered one of them with one of his hands. You can't control it. Not yet. Let yourself feel what you feel. Before and after, Malcolm told him. He couldn't look at him. He was breathing hard. It was like I woke up, but I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I couldn't gasp in pain. Trevon released his grip. I imagine that pain was incredibly intense. Malcolm's chest hurt. His arm. His leg. He was tensing both of them. Breathe, Trevon told him. Deep breath in. Malcolm was breathing too fast. He felt it. He took a deep breath. 
Now let it out slowly. You're safe. You're on earth. His breath was shaky when he blew it out. What did you feel besides pain? Did you know where they were cutting? I felt them crack my ribs, reach in, my right leg, my right arm. He stretched out his hand. His fingers shook. I thought I'd die. He took another breath. I wanted to die. I can imagine, Trevon said. Did you hear them? Malcolm nodded. It was gibberish, but calm, dispassionate. And I knew they didn't know. I tried. You were paralyzed. Anesthesia requires both paralysis and unconsciousness. The balance was off. Trevon spoke softly, more like Beju, later. Did you know how long it was? Malcolm shook his head. Felt like forever. The memory slammed into him. His hand went to his eye, the bandage there. He needed to remove it. Malcolm, it may not be safe yet. Trevon's hand was on his arm. Wait here, I'll ask. The hand was gone. His eye opened. He couldn't move it, couldn't blink. The light hurt. Those three fingers reached for him. The cold metal pushed under his lower eyelid. He was breathing too fast. He couldn't slow down. A blade pierced his eye. He had to get the bandage off. Let me help you. The bandage unwound from his head slowly. They were still cutting. He could see his body splayed open. Then he couldn't. It was all a blur. There was a pressure as they popped it back in. The last bandage pulled away. The light hurt. He brought up his hand to block the light. Don't touch it. It's still healing. Malcolm threw off the blanket, tried to rise. I need to see it. Trevon helped him up, helped him as he walked to the end of the love seat and into the restroom. There was a mirror over the sink. He forced his eye to stop squinting. It was open. It was there. It was red where it should have been white, but he could see the reflection clearly. He covered his other eye, still clear. His breathing slowed. He turned to leave. I think you need the bed, Trevon told him. That took a lot from you. He couldn't hold himself up anymore. He felt so tired. Trevon half carried him to the bed, helped him into it. He lowered the head of it halfway down, then retrieved the blanket. He stayed by the bed. It was six hours, Malcolm. You survived it. Over and over, you survived it. You may need to keep reminding yourself of that. You're a survivor. Six hours. He looked up at the frozen screen. The return of the king was four hours, 23 minutes. Six was longer. I would have died if they had let me, he breathed. I know. I would too if it had been me. I doubt anyone could feel differently in that situation. Only someone who can't feel pain. Even they would find it disturbing. But you got through it then, and you'll get through it now. When those memories drop on you, try to tell yourself that it's over, or tell yourself where you are. Find one concrete moment after your rescue that can be your anchor on this side of it. Trevon put the controller in his hand. Finish your film, and then try and get some rest. Tomorrow should be easier. As he went to the door, he dimmed the lights. Malcolm unpaused the video and tried to lose himself in the battle on the Pelinor. Eventually, nurses arrived. They reconnected the IV and the monitor. Malcolm never moved his gaze from the screen. He didn't want to see them and what they were doing. The pulse monitor beeped quickly, but the Corsairs had arrived, and Legolas was taking down an Oliphant all by himself. The beeping slowed in time, and it was steady when the credits rolled. His eyes were heavy, and he fell asleep. Well, there we have chapter six. Eleven more to go.
Um, that was one of the first times I really wrote a flashback, I think. Um, a, a trauma, traumatic flashback, not a flash, not a literary flashback. Um, this story has probably been the most challenging in writing that as things happen later there'll be very much a mix of times and flashbacks they're all kind of joining together and it was a very it was very challenging to write but when I actually put pen to paper I found it just kept happening it kept working so I think that's just me writing by magic <laughs> that if I follow what the magic wanted the line of the story that I was first given if I followed where it was leading then I could write it and I did um, we still do things in my writing group where we talk about different ways to write and architect archetypes and um, things like the hero's journey and the queen narrative or the king narrative or um, those, but you know, I, I gotta admit, I just don't follow those things when I write. Um, some people do, and they lay out the beats of their story, and it works for them. I mean, Star Wars is from the hero's journey, and Harry Potter is from the hero's journey archetype. So they work and they can be made to make many different stories. You can't say that Star Wars and Harry Potter are exactly the same. One set in, you know, England with magic and one set in a galaxy far, far away with the Force. I mean, they have similarities like that, but they also have massive differences. So J.K. Rowling and... Um, Sorry, and now I'm blanking on who came up with Star Wars. I'm <sighs> Swiss cheese memory. I know I know it. And as soon as I'm done with this podcast, I'll probably remember it. But <laughs> I keep wanting to say Gene Roddenberry, but that's Star Trek. So George Lucas. There we go. George Lucas. <laughs> All right. So they came up with very different stories based on the same archetype that can be done i would put those people more in the planner again i think of it as a spectrum so they are closer to the end of planner the extreme of planner would be somebody who maps out the whole thing all the world building the magic rules and all that um plots out an, an outline before they ever start writing, etc. Just fully planning everything before they write. Um, Pantser extreme would be a blank piece of paper. Somebody picks up a pen and just starts writing and makes a story. One thing we're doing, we've done, we've seen part of it in our writing group is watch this um, professor who shows himself. He's like, I'm going to show you as I write this story. And he basically has some photographs and with a little blurb from the photograph, they might've jotted something down. That's where he starts. And then he has a blank piece of paper and he starts writing. He is so far over on Panzer side. I am somewhere in the, not quite the middle. I think a little closer to, you know, just past the center. So I'm not 
on the planner, I'm, I'm close, that one step is closer to planner in that I know where I'm going. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm much closer to, to pantser. I know some beats of where I'm going, but I can still make changes. Like, I didn't know the choice at the end of this story until well past season, uh, chapter six. So, you know, it can still happen. But I did have an idea for the main gist of where this story was going. Um, but if you're somebody who does go, okay, here's the beats of a hero's journey. My story has to hit these beats. That might put you a little closer to the planner side. And that's okay if you can make a good story out of it. I can't. I can't write that way. I need the muse or the imagination or whatever it is that I call the magic to tell me in some way what will happen. And that might be a conversation that I hear, a dialogue that I hear and feel. And I'm like, ooh, this is Bashir and Cisco confrontation in Faith One Hope. Where Cisco was afraid of Bashir and Bashir actually backed him into a wall or pushed him into the wall. And it was just like, whoa, how did he get like that? And where is this story going? <laughs> I heard that and I kind of like I was watching that, but without visuals because uh, I don't visualize well. So I was experiencing that while I was getting ready for bed one night. And it was just like, whoa. Or during Pain of Memory, and unfortunately I didn't write some of them down, I had these beautiful, heart-wrenching um, personal journal or whatever they call it, personal logs from Bashir as he was losing his mind. I got some of them in there afterwards, but they're much better if I had written them down so that I'd have that perfect magic-given logs, you know? Or myth and memory was this, as I was driving, I was seated upon my horse and then I was seated upon the ground in this English accent like you'd hear on the Lord of the Rings at Rohirrim. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's where some of my stories have come from. That's where some of the scenes have come from. And... That's one manifestation of the magic. Another manifestation is when the characters surprise me. That Jordan was supposed to be a seat warmer. Kira got up off the helm. Somebody has to sit down. I called him Jordan. There we go. But he wouldn't stand for that. He kept popping up. He, said he volunteered to go down to the camp as a prisoner. A vulnerable position. But in the end, he's the one who spots Bashir. So, <laughs> and I brought him back in uh, Faith. No, I brought, yeah, no, Pain of Memory. I brought him back in Pain of Memory as a clone. And then he is in Faith, actually Faith 3. So, yeah, um, he, he was just a seat warmer. So the magic said, no, 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 he's more than this. Or the character himself said, he, no, I can't settle for that. I want to be more. Um, so they can surprise me there. Um, Bucky and the therapist in A Tale of Two Cats and Other Stories surprised me with those two bits of compassion and wisdom. As I'm writing, 
when I was intimidated by Garrick. So I only wrote him first in Osvanshim as an hallucination Dr. Bashir was having. He tripped me up. He surprised me. Because I had Ma uh, Dr. Bashir going back from the ship, back down to the camp, because he didn't want ten other people to die. Because he escaped. But he's caught by the changeling. She hangs him up back on in outside of section or outside of um building number 10 and between 10 and 11 and while he's hanging there with his arms behind his back he hallucinates Garrick and Garrick in his conversation with Bashir points out or turns it around to show that he was doing a selfish thing not a self, not just a selfless thing. And I'm like, I have this super idealistic version of Dr. Bashir in my headcanon, so he would not be doing a selfish thing, but ooh, Garrick had a point. <laughs> so even an hallucinating, an hallucination of Garrick managed to surprise me in the writing. That's the magic to me. It's the. Uh, the thing that pulls a chiasmus without trying to pull a chiasmus. You know, just, I listen to the characters and write what they say. Is that not magic right there? Is that not listen to the magic? Because how do you listen to the characters? You, in, in your mind, you make that they are real and they're in the situation you have put them in. And then you listen to what they'd say. And you write it down. And I believe that's why my characters sound like themselves. Trip would say it in diff a different way than Malcolm would say. Teaspoon would talk one way and Buck would talk another. In Final Fantasy, Gladio and Prompto sound very different. But... You listen to them, and you write what they'd say, how they'd say it, and it works for me, anyway, because <laughs> I write by magic. I, it really is like, gosh, I smile talking about it. When I was in physical therapy for my shoulder, and I talk about writing, she's like, relax your arms, because I talk with my hands when I talk about writing. <laughs> I get very excited about it because this writing is my drug. It is my drug of choice. Writing makes me happy. And the magic is part of that. And I selfishly feel sorry for anybody who writes without the magic. Because it's amazing. It's a, definitely a better writer than me. Because when it, you know, had those personal logs, I wrote some decent ones. But man, they were do it. You know, they put me to shame. They were incredible. When people write me a lot, you know, like their favorite scene out of Faith One, it is always that Cisco Bashir confrontation, and I'm like, I know because that's what made me write the story. It came to me. There was another in in Faith, I believe. 
where I was walking down the hall, like from the bedrooms or the bathroom, down past the dining room into the living room, and I heard Bashir basically telling O'Brien that he should have should shouldn't have stopped him from committing suicide that it was you know it was the right decision because now he feels suicidal and it was O'Brien having to talk Bashir down and I was just like whoa and that's in faith too I believe so yeah I don't think I'm like schizophrenic or anything I know these are not reality so it's not like I get lost in that but I do hear these things sometimes or I just get an idea I have definite ideas for what happens to Bucky after a tale of two cats and other stories but it hasn't gelled into the next story yet giving in was basically two scenes that I just kept kept imagining and I plopped them into that story and it, it works. But then, you know, I have to, I've got part of a scene for some of these other things. And maybe if I get the full scene and if I get the stuff that leads up to it, maybe then I can go, ah, got it. This is what happens. And now we can, I can write. But it's got a gel. And what I may do is after I type up momentous then I go back and read the first 11 chapters of the path not taken write the next chapter of the path not taken maybe I go back and read or listen to the pieces to a puzzle series and maybe that'll help jumpstart the magic to give me the actual you know the next story maybe that'd be cool it's it's a lot of fun to write and to think that we can create movies in other people's minds. We can alleviate, and in some senses, trauma. I've written two therapy stories, I think, uh, yeah. One of them was close, not close to home. Yes, close to home so far away. That was a therapy story after they killed Doyle after nine, chapter nine, or episode nine of the first season of Angel. And I wrote The Way to Bring Him Back. Um, and it was like now in my little place in my brain where all these stories happen, Doyle is alive, so I can move on. I wrote a short story and a that long story, and that's it, an angel. I can move on. And the other ther therapy story was more than a ghost, because the game Call of Duty Ghosts seems to end on a happy note. We won. We're both alive, me and my brother, because your play is Logan, so we're good. We're on the beach. We're watching the good guys win, and then the credits roll, and we're like, yes, we did it, and then the credits stop, and Rourke is back, and he kicks your brother, and he drags, he breaks your arm, and he drags you off into the jungle while your brother's calling out, Logan, Logan, yeah, traumatic, 
and then the credits roll again. They finish. And then all you see is a rainy scene of a view from the bottom of a pit that's covered by a grate in the jungle. And you know what that means because they told you something they couldn't have known, but, you know, bad writing in that sense. But they told you what happened to Rourke to make him turn. And unfortunately, the game didn't sell well enough to get a sequel, so it left you a cliffhanger like that with no resolution. So I wrote the resolution. And there's definitely at least one commenter who said, oh my God, thank you. It was on sale, so I got this game. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I needed this story. It's like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so it can alleviate stress. I can make the sequel for not just me, but for somebody else. And to think that we can manipulate the emotions of other people through stories. You can make them laugh. You can make them cry. You can make them feel. That is amazing. I told you about A Tale of Two Cities being like good beginning, hard middle, end is fabulous and incredible. If I ever need a cathartic cry... Like, literally one time I had an eyelash stuck in my tear duct and my eye was drying out. I went and got A Tale of Two Cities and I read the last two pages. And it never, ever fails to make me cry. And it washed that eyelash right out. <laughs> so I know there's a guaranteed cry. Just go read the last two pages all that stuff that Sidney Carton would have written down if he'd had the chance. It's incredible. And it makes me cry every single time. <laughs> How many other people have cried at the end of A Tale of Two Cities? Charles Dickens had that idea. He wrote it down and he put that in our minds and manipulated our emotions. Even years, decades, maybe a century after. Isn't that incredible? Some people do that with visual stories like TV shows, cartoons, comics, movies. But even then, there's somebody who did it with a pen and a paper or a typewriter or a computer because you have a script. A script does everything with dialogue and a little bit of direction, like enters from this side or whatever, but it doesn't go into all the emotion, all the prose that goes around the dialogue. That's where fiction does. And my strengths in writing, I believe, are dialogue. I do very realistic, believable dialogue and make the characters sound like themselves. And getting you deep inside a character and feeling what they feel. One of my weaknesses is vis visible or vision. No, yeah, visible description. Disc Sorry, I'm getting a little phagic description. I don't visualize 
so it's harder for me to put in all the visual description for the characters. That's why it's been a challenge in a sense, to, but maybe not, to write Ignis in Final Fantasy XV in Momentous because he's blind. I've just taken away all the visual description when I'm writing from him. <laughs> so now I have to stretch myself and think about sounds, smells. Feeling, well, feelings are easy, <laughs> but I have, to, I have to stretch myself beyond the obvious, which is sight. And it's been, it's been challenging, but it's been cool. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope that you're reading the, well, listening to these stories and that you're getting enjoyment from my imagination. My, my story has put a movie in your head. So that you see these characters doing these things. These things happen to these characters. You see that in your head. You play that. I watched the first Lord of the Rings movie, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, once. I got the book. And by the time I'd watched the Fellowship of the Ring, I think the second, but maybe the third time, I've read, I've read the entire trilogy. <laughs> and... Thank you to the Fellowship of the Ring and Peter Jackson for giving me the visuals that I don't have well. So Tolkien doesn't describe Legolas all that much. So there's been debate of whether he was blonde or dark-haired. Um, to me, he looks like Orlando Bloom's Legolas because I have that. The new Mordor looks like what Peter Jackson showed us. Karatras looks like what Peter Jackson showed us. The Shire, all of it looks like what Peter Jackson showed us. So I can visualize what Tolkien wrote. And it was absolutely incredible. And he, he writes beautifully. The books, in some ways, are better than the movies, and the movies, in some ways, better. I don't think Tom Bombadil needed to be in the book, in the movies. He wasn't that great of a character, in my opinion. But uh, the rest of it, I mean, Lord of the Rings is definitely worth a read if you've not. It's beautiful. And it's a page-turner. Even though it's long, you'll want to turn it, turn it, turn it, turn it, keep reading it is that good. I hope that my stories can be half that good and that you'll want to keep hearing the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. Well, I should finish this and uh, move on, maybe even type up that chapter of Momentous, and tomorrow I'll read chapter 7. If you'd like to let me know what you think about this story, about writing, if you're a writer, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, if you're just a reader, what is your favorite thing about what writers can do, um, drop me a line, please, I'd love to hear from you, inhildy at gmail.com, that is I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, inhildy. And my Mastodon handle is at Inhildy, spelled exactly the same way. Can't tweet me anymore. 
Elon Musk ruined Twitter, so I'm not, I'm not there anymore. But I do hope you will let me know what you think, and I will see you tomorrow. Thank you.